0: Let's pray together. Jesus, help us to see you. And your word, by your spirit, open our hearts, open our minds to see you, Lord, and to surrender. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Well, when you look at Jesus, when you really look at Jesus, at his life, at his ministry, his death, his resurrection, when you look at Jesus, you see the great grace of God on display, that God would come to us as a baby in Bethlehem, that he would live among us a perfect sinless life, He would bear our sins on the cross, that He would set His gaze upon us, that the God in Christ would set His gaze upon us and love us. What grace we see when we look at Jesus. But when we look at how Jesus was rejected, not only at how He was mocked, beaten, and crucified, but also at how He was rejected in smaller ways. By those who listened to what he said, saw him perform miracles, and turned and walked the other way. They saw him with their own two eyes, raise the dead, cast out demons, and yet they rejected him. When we look at how Jesus was rejected, we see the wickedness and the blindness, the sadness, the arrogance of sin that we could dismiss the very Son of God himself, that we could judge the righteous judge. What a tragedy it is when we see Jesus and we reject him. And this is the tension that the writers of the Gospels present to us. And it's the tension in our text this morning at the end of John chapter 6. And it's the same tension, by the way, that we we live in. Belief and unbelief. Belief in Jesus and rejection of Jesus. John 3.16, which we all know pretty well, presents the good news, the invitation of God and Christ to us clearly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And praise God, many countless of millions have believed in this great gift of love. But many have seen this Jesus and have rejected him and have perished in their unbelief. So how do we make sense of this tension? That some see and believe and come to know this Jesus, while others see but don't believe. And reject the same Jesus. Most of us this morning, probably in this room, have heard Jesus' exclusive claims about himself and have taken him at his word. While there are others, probably some in this room as well, who have heard those same exclusive claims and have dismissed them. Jesus stands in the center of human history the most consequential person who has ever lived as the ultimate dividing line. And on one side we have belief and the other unbelief. There is no middle. There is no both and. Because Jesus, because of his own claims of his exclusivity, because of his own claims of his authority, because of his own claims of his lordship, has not left us that middle Either we believe that what he said was true, or we don't. And this morning we come to the end of John chapter 6. We're looking at verses 60 through 69 that we read just a few minutes ago. And we see Jesus, as clear as day, putting himself on display as the Son of God. And we see, clear as day, many people believing in him. And we also see, as clear as day, many people rejecting him and walking the other way. Belief and unbelief. Those will be our two main points that we're going to consider this morning in light of Scripture. First, unbelief, and second, belief. But Jesus, we'll get here, is not surprised by any of it all. Jesus is not anxious. He's not worried. He's not unsure of what's happening around him. So we'll see by the end that John 6 is not primarily about these two postures of people. Primarily about the posture of Jesus. We've been looking at this chapter for most of August, but I know it's kind of vacation season, travel seasons. Let's review very briefly what got us to this boiling point at the end of John chapter 6. You can split up John 6 kind of into thirds. The first third, the first 21 uh, verses, Jesus performs what are called two nature miracles. First, he feeds 20,000 people with fishes and loaves. And then the second miracle is he walks on the water. Many people see these miracles. They are astounded at them. The second part of the chapter is Jesus explaining what point he was trying to make. And Jesus is basically saying he's the one everyone's been waiting for. He's the one the prophets were pointing to. He is the perfect manna that always satisfies. He is the bread of life. He is the way. He is the only way to be saved. He is God. And he keeps turning the heat up. You can feel it throughout this chapter. He keeps making his point. You can feel the tension growing. You can feel the temperature rising. And it builds and builds to a crescendo. And we get to this last section of the chapter. And Jesus continues to drive his point home. Continues to point to himself, to his body, to his blood, to his exclusivity. And he won't let up. You can almost feel his disciples in the background saying, Jesus, give it a break for a minute. You're going to lose everybody. But he doesn't stop. And we get to verse 60. And you can just tell the people in the room are poking each other and saying, Is he really saying what we think he's saying? He can't really be saying what we think he's saying. Is he? And so by verse 60, where our text begins this morning, we read that when many of his disciples, quick interruption note there, the word disciples there is not talking about the eventual 12 disciples, it's talking about a broader number of people who have been hanging around Jesus, following him, multitudes of people. When those disciples heard what he was saying, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Now, throughout church history, theologians have kind of had different viewpoints of what exactly the crowd had a hard time swallowing. So John Chrysostom a long time ago said the crowd had a hard time swallowing it because they thought Jesus was exaggerating. Augustine came along and said, no, the crowd thought he was advocating cannibalism. Luther came along and said, no, the crowd thought he was being too exclusive about himself. You read chapter 6, and I think it's pretty clear. The crowd couldn't swallow all of that. They were hardened in their hearts. And that is the posture of unbelief. A hard heart. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? In his commentary on the book of John, John Calvin responded in this way. On the contrary, it was in their hearts and not in the saying that the harshness lay. I think that's helpful. He goes on to say that sinners rush against Christ. They complain that his saying is harsh, which ought rather to have softened them. So the unbeliever says that what Jesus is saying is hard. When in reality, sadly, tragically, it's their own heart that has become hard. Flash back to our Ephesians series, just a few months ago, just last month. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, we read this. Paul wrote, "Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, Alienated from the life of God, now catch this, because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the ignorance that's in them due to what? Their hardness of heart. This is a spiritual heart condition that manifests itself in a response to Jesus that says, he's the one who is hard. The problem is with Jesus, not with me. It positions the creature above the creator, the sinner above the redeemer, my mortal comprehension above his infinite wisdom. And this kind of sinful arrogance is dominant in all of us at our birth. We are born spiritually dead. We are born with hard hearts. Then, praise God, who the miracle of salvation and regeneration, God gives us new hearts. But apart from the resurrection of Christ, we're dead, and our hearts are hard, and we're unbelieving. And the posture of unbelief is one that says, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? It's not just that a posture of unbelief says, this is a hard saying. I mean, if you're a Christian for any amount of time, Read your Bible any amount of time. You'll come across things that are hard. I read my Bible almost every day. And hardly a day goes by when I don't read something. And I think, oh, that's difficult to understand. This is hard. It's hard upon me. But their response was not, this is a hard saying. Lord, help me understand. This is a hard saying. I must need to spend more time with this man. This is a, this is a hard saying. There must be There must be a cloudiness in my thinking. No, they say... This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So a posture of unbelief is not just a a hard heart. This is a hard saying. But it's one that even if it could understand what Jesus was saying, it wouldn't accept it. It would find Jesus unacceptable. And so at the end of verse 61, Jesus asks them. He keeps escalating things. Do you take offense at this? And then in verse 62, he puts his foot on the gas. Verse 62, look with me. Jesus says, then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? As clear as day, Jesus is saying he is God ascending to where he was before. So in other words, Jesus is saying, if you're offended by me saying that I came down from heaven, just wait until you see me ascend to heaven. He didn't back down. He didn't water down. He didn't stand down. He did not allow a middle way. And verse 64 and 65 seem to be the tipping point. Verse 64, there are some of you, Jesus says, who do not believe. And then verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. This is the last straw, for many in the crowd. It's the last straw. It had it. And the next verse, 66, is what one commentator said is one of the saddest verses in the entire New Testament. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What a tragedy it is when we look at how Jesus was rejected They saw his miracles, they heard his teaching, but their hearts were hard. The posture of unbelief is the posture of a hard heart, but the posture of belief that we see, the posture of belief is the posture of surrender. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You can hear the wonderful sound of surrender in Peter's voice. Lord, to whom shall we go? This right here, this is the sinner's prayer. It's not long. It's not complicated. It's not theologically dense. It's a cry of surrender. A recognition of nothing else but spiritual helplessness. Lostness. Hopelessness. That finds its only answer and its perfect fulfillment in Jesus. In our text this morning, we don't read Peter saying something like this. Lord, I have a full grasp of everything you just said. I am fully sanctified, fully ready to follow you, and you will find no areas in my life in need of major surgery. No. Peter simply throws his hands up in surrender and says, where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. I give up. To quote the famous theologian Carrie Underwood, Jesus take the wheel. (laughs) That's what Peter is saying. The posture of belief is simply a posture of surrender. We can oftentimes think wrongly in terms of opposites. Well, if a posture of unbelief is a posture of unreadiness, then a posture of belief must be readiness. If a posture of unbelief means that someone doesn't, doesn't have their act cleaned up, doesn't have their house in order, well, then a posture of belief must be that before I come to Jesus, I have to have my act cleaned up. I have to have my house in order. And Jesus says, no, you come to me with your nothing, and I do the rest. Posture of belief is a posture of surrender. And the Holy Spirit does his preemptive work in us so that we can just utter baby words to God. Lord, where else can we go? Peter brings nothing to Jesus but a posture of surrender. I have nowhere else to go. And how he says what he says next is very important. Look with me at verse 69. Look at the order of what Peter says. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So first, belief happens. We are led by the Holy Spirit to surrender. Galatians 4 says that God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So that's belief. That's a moment of belief, a cry of surrender. That comes first. Then, as Peter put it, we come to know. I love how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So belief is the lights are turned on and knowledge is a growing intimacy of relationship with him. I read a tweet by Tim Keller a few months ago that rang very true for me. He said this, your future self will always see your present self as unwise and immature. That means, by your own standards, you are currently a fool right now. (laughs) And the posture of belief, then, is simply a posture of surrender that says, Lord, I know I am a fool, but I have nowhere else to go. And you have the words of eternal life. And then, from there, we can pray, like the father of the boy, with an unclean spirit, in Mark 9. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but Jesus helped my unbelief. And Jesus does help us. I think it's interesting that Peter refers to Jesus here in verse 69 as the Holy One of God. Holy One of God. Because the only other time we see that phrase in the New Testament is when it's spoken to Jesus by an evil spirit. Both Mark 1, 24, and Luke 4, 34, quote the evil spirit to say to Jesus, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So in the one instance, Peter, a believer, and in the other instance, an evil spirit, both recognize that Jesus is the powerful, authoritative representative of God who holds his fate in his hands. Posture of unbelief says, I hold my fate in my hands. Posture of belief is one that says, I know who you are. You're the Holy one of God. You hold my fate in your hands. And over and above it all, over unbelief and over belief is the posture of Jesus. And he is in full control. And he is full of love. Our text shows us very clearly a Jesus who is in full control, who is not anxious, who is not worried, not unsure of what's happening around him, but rather totally sovereign over unbelief and belief. Look with me at verse 61. Some insights into Jesus here. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Knowing in himself Now skip ahead a few verses to verse 64. Jesus says, there are some of you who do not believe. And then the author, Mark, gives us this insight into Jesus. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. He knew from the beginning. You can imagine the muttering of the crowd looking at what's happening. This is Jesus' first major sermon. And what's the result? A massive loss of disciples. So you can hear the crowd. Imagine what they were saying. Look at this guy. He's losing everybody. Look at this. This is more like a funeral for Jesus' ministry than anything else. But Jesus is not surprised by anything that's happening. Jesus is in full control. This is true in John 6. And it's true today. That Jesus is not on pins and needles, wondering how things are going to play out. He is not wondering how he will advance his gospel. He's not wondering how he's going to respond to the latest church crisis or world event. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is not worried. He is Lord over everything. We've just seen he's Lord over unbelief. Now we'll see he's even Lord over belief. If your Bible's open, look a few verses earlier, back in verse 44, same chapter, verse 44, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Then he twists it up a little bit in our text this morning, verse 65, to say, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So we don't believe Unless the Father draws us to Jesus, verse 44. And unless the Father gives us the gift of faith, verse 65. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. His initiative has shown in our hearts, his initiative. To give the light, his initiative. Of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. His revelation, praise God. So this Jesus that we see portrayed in the Gospels is in full control and is full of love. And I want to close by having us look briefly at the question Jesus asks his disciples then in verse 67. In the ESV, English Standard Version that we use here, it says this. Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Other versions phrase this question in a similarly kind of anxious way. One translation says, are you also going to leave? Or another translation, do you also wish to go away? My slight problem with some of these translations, if they, they give the impression that Jesus was asking the question anxiously, as if he didn't know the heart of Peter. Jesus did not ask his disciples this question with an ounce of anxiety in his body. Jesus asked this question full of love. So I like how the NIV puts it. Jesus, you can picture him putting his arm around Peter, looking him in the eye and saying, you don't want to leave too, do you? You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus knew all the faults, And all the future failures of all these 12 men that he was calling as his disciples. He knew that Peter would one day deny him three times before the rooster crowed. And yet, Jesus loved them and he called them anyways. And he knows all of the faults and all of the future failures of all of us as well. All of his disciples here on earth. He knows all the ways we will deny him the ways we will reject him, all the ways that we will slide back towards unbelief. And yet, he loves us. I love how J.I. Packer put it in his book, Knowing God. There is tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. You ever thought about it that way? God's love for you is utterly realistic. Like it was for his disciples, like it was for Peter, it's the same for you. It's the same for me. It's the same for this church. He foreknew us. He foreloved us. He forecalled us, knowing in advance all the worst about us. And yet, he set his gaze on us. And he loved us. And he called us anyways. When we look at Jesus, we see the great grace of God. And when we look at how he was rejected and is rejected, we see the hardness of heart and the wickedness of sin. But then we read John chapter 6. And we see Jesus, the Holy One of God, standing in the center of human history as the unavoidable dividing line and over hard hearts of unbelief, and over soft hearts of surrender, Jesus knows and Jesus reigns. Let's pray together. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, where our hearts are hard, shine your light, send your spirit. Give us the gift of faith. Give us a gift of belief. Help us to believe. Help us to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus, our wonderful, merciful Savior, you offer hope when our hearts have hopelessly lost the way. So please, Jesus, give us hearts of Surrender. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.